On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Fairly varied uh, palette of stories on the front pages this morning. Uh, we'll start with the Business Post, which is um, a complicated uh, but very interesting one all the same. Gardaí contacted the Director of Public Prosecutions about Heather Humphrey's handling of a complaint from a prison services whistleblower. The Business Post tells us today. The whistleblower, Noel McGree, claims that a letter sent on behalf of the Interim Justice Minister last year was the reason that he withdrew his cooperation from a Garda investigation into the issues that he had raised in his protected disclosure. Now, this is where things get a little bit more complicated because a spokesperson for the force, uh, that's Angarda Shikona, said yesterday that it had sought advice from the DPP about the complaint made by the whistleblower and that no further investigation was taking place. But when the Business Post had first asked about the status of the complaint uh, on, on Friday, the Garda spokesperson, this was a complaint about Heather Humphreys, uh, a Garda spokesperson said that a file had been submitted to the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Uh, the Garda Press Office then subsequently contacted the Business Post yesterday to say there had been a mistake and that no file had been sent to the DPP. Uh, a spokesman said that Garda had sought advice on the complaint from the local state solicitor's office but it then again contacted the newspaper later in the afternoon to say that that wasn't true either. The spokesman said that in a subsequent phone call that the Gardaí had not contacted the local state solicitor, but it actually sought advice on the complaint from the DPP, but it had been decided that no further Garda investigation would take place. A spokesperson for Heather Humphreys, the Interim Minister for Justice, did not respond to a request for comment. She has taken to Twitter again this morning to say that the reporting of this in the Business Post is the first that she heard about any of this. Uh, so effectively what you have is the Garda Press Office appearing to struggle to get its story straight to the Business Post about exactly what it was doing about a complaint uh, made about Heather Humphreys when she was the Interim Justice Minister uh, by that whistleblower Noel McGree. Uh, all of this of course being very interesting timing because as of uh, 7 o'clock um, on Friday night Heather Humphreys is once again the Interim Minister for Justice but she says uh, this morning that she knows nothing about all of this and she does note that no further action is proposed to be taken by Angarda Shiakona. Um, also on the front page of the Business Post this morning a radical overhaul of the Irish planning system will limit access to judicial review process and place mandatory timelines on board Planola. That's under a new consolidated planning bill to be brought before Cabinet early next month in an attempt to restore trust in the planning system. And we're also told that Moneypoint Power Station will be converted from coal to oil and 30% of all vehicles will be electric by 2030 under the state's new climate action plan, according to the Business Post. Eamon Ryan with us after 12 o'clock. We'll see what he has to say about all of that. Um, front page of the Sunday Independent. The coalition is heading for conflict over possible tax breaks for developers to accelerate the delivery of housing and address spiralling homelessness. Outgoing uh, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue says that he believes expenditure measures and not tax cuts for developers are the best way to address the crisis. That is, of course, Pascal Donoghue who will, in four weeks' time, be the Minister responsible for expenditure. Um, but that it is uh, not the view within Fianna Fáil because its Housing Minister, Dara O'Brien, appears to believe that there is a targeted role, a role for targeted tax measures, which could be time-bound, suggesting maybe a possible cut in VAT for apartment developers or some focused tax allowances for developers. Uh, also on the front page of the Sindo, senior coalition figures expressing concern over claims made in the murder trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch about Sinn Féin and its leader Mary Lou Macdonald. We might discuss that a little bit later this hour. Um, the front page of the Mail on Sunday has uh, John Lee sitting down with the incoming Taoiseach Leo Varadkar who says that he would support any request from the Garda Commissioner to arm rank and file members of Angarda Shiakona. In an exclusive interview with the Mail on Sunday, Leo Varadkar hits out of the really appalling scenes in Ballyfermot earlier this week when two officers were hospitalised after being attacked in the early hours of the morning. Asked if he thought the state needs an armed force in the wake of those recent high-profile attacks on Gardaí, Mr Varadkar said, cut to page four, which I think is actually page six, uh, wherever it is, wherever it is, uh, sorry, he said he would say yes and not block a move to arm Gardaí if asked to do so by Drew Harris. 
Fine Gael leader who's due to take over as uh, Taoiseach from Micheál Martin in three weeks told the Mail on Sunday it's very much a decision for the Garda Commissioner rather than politician but certainly if the Commissioner came to me or came to the Minister for Justice and said I think we need our guards to be armed or that we need more guards to be armed well then I would say absolutely say yes but that should be a call for the Commissioner and his team rather than politicians says Leo Varadkar uh, and finally for now the Irish Mail on Sunday Irish authorities sorry excuse me the Irish Sunday Times um, Irish authorities are set for a showdown with two of the biggest tech giants headquartered here as major inquiries are launched into the conduct of new Twitter owner Elon Musk and a suspected data breach by the WhatsApp owner Meta Meta which of course is also the parent company of Facebook and Instagram has been contacted by the Data Protection Commission to try and ascertain if the telephone numbers of 487 million WhatsApp users have been scraped by hackers who are then selling the details to criminal gangs. Last week it was reported that malicious actors were selling up-to-date mobile numbers of millions of WhatsApp users. The breach was set to have affected people in 84 countries, including uh, EU member states, and then this would be the basis under which uh, criminal gangs are able to use those phishing attacks where they have uh, text messages soliciting personal information. Meta declined to comment yesterday. Today's disclosure from the Sunday Times comes, it says, as the Commissioner prepares to issue a series of findings of a separate inquiry into Facebook after it included its investigation into the collection of data belonging to 533 million people scraped from public profiles a, pro- a fine is imminent and may set to the hundreds of millions of euro um, that is your potted tour of the very varied uh, front pages of this morning's newspapers join us Judith to discuss uh, the issues in those papers uh, by Gabby Gadavitskita who's a political reporter for the independent.ie and by Gina London former CNN correspondent and an international communication strategist and trainer um, good morning to you both thank you very much for coming in um, I'm going to start um, because we often do whenever they're in uh, the newspapers particularly the business post uh, with an opinion poll uh, which doesn't make the front page which, which in a way is somewhat striking actually that it doesn't make the front page because it's the first opinion poll in a long time which is genuinely remarkable uh, Gabby because for the first time in over a year um, Sinn Féin losing a significant number of points but also this is beyond the margin of error this is Sinn Féin down four points in only a month or so Yeah it's not the main lead story on the front of the Business Post but it is on the front uh, there's a photo of Mary Lou MacDonald mm. on the front of the paper um, yeah, so th- they're down by 4.31%, which is its lowest support level since September 2021, when the party was on 29%. Um, and I suppose that's really quite remarkable because for a number of, I would say, maybe a year and a half now, there's been sort of this narrative within Irish political discourse that Sinn Féin are just by de facto going to go into government next time around because of how well they're doing in the polls. Mm. And I think sometimes we forget that, you know, two years um, in politics is really a quite a very long time. We are seeing that, I suppose, popularity for them stalling a little bit. Um, you know, if you talk to Leo Varadkars, I'm sure um, he, he probably so told the same to John Lee in his interview in the Irishman on Sunday that, you know, if you look at polls, well, the, the poll that matters is the one on election day, but he still is very much keenly follows them and, and he, he'll say, well, support for government parties uh, remains quite strong. But I suppose it comes on the back of Weeks and weeks and weeks of of really what has been bad press for Sinn Féin. Um, You know, one small example is, of course, the Regency trial and the involvement of Jonathan Dowdall in that trial. Mm. And in every single media report, he's named as ex-Sinn Féin councillor. So every single time you look at a news story, every single time you look, you switch on the television and the the trial is on it, Mm. that's what's brought up. so look, we're still a long way away from an election and I think that's important to say. Um, of course, this week we also saw um, the emergence of, of this extraordinary 
tape between um, a conversation between Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry the Monk Hutch um, where they spoke about many things including Sinn Féin um, where a lot of I suppose unbelievable claims were made about the party Sinn Féin have moved to rubbish those claims but Mm. what this means is that there is a bit of a headache for the party and I think probably at one point TDs and Sinn Féin were probably sitting around a table going well what ministry do you want and what (laughs) what role do you want in government and Mary Lou was probably thinking about what is my cabinet going to look like I think Maybe let's not get ahead of ourselves a little bit. Two years mm. is still a very long time. Uh, I, and, I'm sure they would they would dispute that idea that they were already trying to carve up the cabinet for themselves. Maybe in their it, dream. Well, they, of course, they, they would need some coalition partners and they, of course, then would have their own designs on, on certain um, briefs as well. But suffice to say, going from 35 to 31% in one month and Fine Gael in the same window, going from 21 to 24, um, I don't know. I'd be very interested to meet a potential voter who immediately goes from uh, Sinn Féin to Fine Gael. I don't know whether they're going through the undecided column before going immediately uh, from one to the other but suffice to say if there's a seven point swing in that gap Gina in one poll that you would only hypothetically need for the same thing to happen again and suddenly you've got a ball game Well that's it and and again I think that Gabby makes a really good point two years is, is a long time before there's another election and some people would say as they're listening to us right now going on and members of the media or former members of the media like myself talking about polls that polls are only good hmm. for the people in the media because we were the ones that really like to look at them dice them and slice them but the people are paying attention to how they're feeling before really a couple of months or weeks even before an election so look what how many polls were saying that the red wave is going to happen in the midterm elections in the United States and that certainly didn't happen so likewise it's important to take a snapshot in time and to make choices around that snapshot in time and of course the issues that continue to matter are health care and housing to the people and how are how's the coalition as it begins to switch over it's its roles and and people are switching their jobs in next month, how are they going to be able to make real differences in that? Mm -hmm. And then again, looking toward a further out coalition, there was, as we're going back to the polls and touting little numbers here, the Green Party did Mm. make a little bit of an inroad there and a step up in that recent poll that you're talking about now. So, Although, albeit only up one point from 4% to 5, which is uh, (laughs) far short of uh, Eamon Ryan's aspiration of 10%, uh, which we'll talk to him about. about. Uh, Well, you know, it's just uh, baby steps. Um, That is all on pages 20 and 21 of the Business Post if you do want to go a little bit deeper in it. Uh, One thing which would be fascinating, it's it's not published in today's uh, paper, but that's not to say they haven't asked the questions, is what is motivating uh, that change? Is there some change in what people's priorities are or do they feel like there are things that Sinn Féin may not be able to deliver and maybe is that the reason why uh, the support is falling a little bit? But that's all on pages 20 and 21. And because you pointed out that this is something maybe that the media likes to go too much into and maybe doesn't obsess other people, let's talk about something which does, uh, which of course is housing because there is extensive reporting across today's papers um, of yesterday's Raise the Roof rally in Dublin City Centre and some other uh, protests around the country. Um, Gabby, your, your colleagues in the Sun Independent today are reporting that the coalition maybe on something of a collision course about whether we should be subsidising developers with some sort of tax breaks to build more homes. Tell us more. Yeah, so I suppose the idea first emerged um, when Deputy Political Editor at the Irish Independent, Hugh O'Connell, did an interview with Dara O'Brien a few weeks ago. And of course, this issue of apartments and how really they are a challenge for us to build because of their viability issues was raised. Um, and Minister O'Brien sort of made the suggestion that he would be in favour of tax breaks for developers to incentivise them to build those apartments. However, that doesn't really seem to be the view of the outgoing finance minister Pascal Donoghue who has said he continues to believe that expended 
expenditure measures and not tax cuts for development are the best way to address the crisis. He's saying, look, that's the best of making a difference to the housing needs that we have, that you can target expenditure in a way that is difficult to do with taxation. So an example of that would be for what, what the government currently has in place for apartments, which is the Cree Kona has Cities Fund, um, which gives developers um, up to 144000 per apartment so that they're incentivized to build them. However, mm. I have reported myself that that scheme has been a little slow to get off the ground. Developers are finding it difficult to navigate. They're not as interested in it. And they're saying, you know, that even the supports that are in place, we still don't have enough of a guarantee because the money comes in too late and so on. So, so that's the issue that they, even though the scheme exists, yes. that basically they get the money the too way, late in the process so yeah. that it's not the as way beneficial that it's designed, as it ought to be. The guarantees, I mean, they have a guarantee from the government, the money comes in too late and they're saying it's still not viable for us to build those apartments. Look, Apartment building is a real issue, but I suppose it's interesting to look at the politics side of this, that there does seem to be a contrasting um, elements between the two ministers, because, of course, Taoiseach Micheál Martin has indicated that Dara Bryan is very likely to stay on as Minister for Housing. Yeah. Mm. And, of course, we know that Pascal who will go on to be the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. Mm. So is it possible that they're going to clash on this um, next or, year? Or maybe you just get both. Uh, maybe maybe you get spending measures tax and you get tax breaks. Yeah. Yeah. Why are they mutually exclusive? Why can't we have this incredible idea of a trifecta where you're seeing in the business post talking about let's overhaul the planning department commission, mm. which amen have I been talking about that for ever since I moved here because the, the way that it is incredibly slow and the appeals process and the number of stakeholders that can appeal or object or protest a project, it needs to be overhauled. And why can't you have expenditures and why can't you have tax tax breaks for mm. developers who are going to bring real density to this city and other places around Ireland that you see like city sizes, Brussels, Amsterdam, have a lot more amenities in their apartments, mm. have a lot more density in their cities. And that allows people that may be living in a home, so let's say, for example, as they're going to retire, and they don't want to, they want to get rid of that home, then they can move into an apartment. But it's, but it's real apartment living. The mindset, I think, of this country around how to become more apartment embracing mm. would certainly be something that would also be coming the in reason, line with the trifecta, as I described. Yeah, the, tri- the reason for the lack of that trifecta is because opposition politicians would immediately say, as Sinn Féin has said, you have sweetheart tax deals with developers, you're giving money to developers, you're giving them tax breaks, and that would, of course, mean for yeah. a lot of political pressure. Because uh, it, it, it's a very delicate nuance, but Sinn Féin is in favour of there being better tax treatment for landlords. I think Anona Brin has said that before, that he thinks that there is some role for that, but whether you would have uh, better tax treatment for developers uh, is mm. it's a very it's a very 2008 uh, political issue and one that I don't imagine the government would like to grapple with of course it is worth remembering there was um, when they brought the budget forward to the end of September Gabby weren't they discussing you know or oh, can we do something in favour of, of tenants but also do something in favour of landlords. landlords and they weren't able to land on something that would work for landlords that couldn't be abused so they just ended yeah. up not doing anything so there is evidently a logjam there already would that, would that be different if uh, Michael McGrath was responsible for the tax area and would Fianna Fáil be able to get its own way if it was responsible for housing and tax and yeah. not have Pascal Dunne who was a gatekeeper? I suppose it depends what it is that Fianna Fáil I suppose what it is that Fianna Fáil really wanted to see at the time. I know that within government there were discussions underway about that high tax that landlords pay. I think it's mm. on about 
50% kind of works out on every rental income that they make and they were trying to maybe reduce that down a little bit to incentivise landlords to stay in the market. So look, I suppose many, those in Sinn Féin probably argue well, sure, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are the same thing but it would be definitely interesting to see what maybe Fianna Gael would have done differently or what Fianna Fáil would have done differently in that same scenario. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll get to see after the reshuffle in uh, in three weeks' time. Um, you mentioned, um, Gina, some comparisons between um, Ireland and, and other uh, urban European cities and this brings us to a spread on, on page Eight of the Sunday Times today, where some diaspora um, say that basically Leo Varadkar appears to have been talking through his hat uh, when he said on this program a week ago um, that he didn't believe that the grass was always greener. Sometimes it does look greener, but that when people actually look into the reality of going abroad, yeah, if you go to another successful, busy city or country, you see a lot of the same programs or program uh, problems rather. Um, something that Leo Varadkar said here last week, and. Um, not a lot of people impressed with, oh, with you know, that. I actually have to say, when I saw this article, I wasn't surprised that the, this story had legs, as we say, because yeah. when I actually heard that live when that interview was happening, and I went, no, 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 no. Mm. Well, thanks for listening, first yeah, of all. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very welcome. You, you <laughs> did a wonderful job. I, said, I thought, you know what? You do not compare God Love Dublin, but it's not New York. It's not Sydney. Purely, if anything, by the millions of more people. There's eight million people in, in, in New York. There's a million here. Mm. I mean, come on. But hang on, but do, you, do you think there's eight million people in New York because they've all decided not to live in Dublin? I mean, that's not... No, no, really. no, that's not the point. The point is merely when you're talking about judging about prices of, of housing, you compare it to a, 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 a city of the same size. It's mm. as simple as that. It's a, you, don't, you don't compare a, the, the state of Indiana to yeah. the state of California. I mean, like, you just don't. So when you're, that's why you people from the diaspora going, well, let's compare like to like. Let's talk about what, it, what it's like to live in Brussels. Let's talk about what it's like to live in Amsterdam. Others were coming in from the different places that they live and that's where we talk about what's the cost of living how what's the square footage or square meters that you can get what's the the amenities that you can get what's the residential safety what's the infrastructure that's provided all of those should be like to like and that's where he made a mistake mm. in that p- p- rather glib type of conversation which doesn't mm. do you favor especially when you're going into a new role in just a matter but of it's weeks just, it's just not true what he's saying like look at berlin for example where they have very tight rent controls which some people will argue is bad for landlords and well, keeping those landlords right, in the market unconstitutional maybe but we never know apparently yeah. so but like i have friends who live in berlin and they're able to rent an apartment in a very nice part of the city for one bedroom apartment for 800 euro a month. Well, this you is cannot the, this get is, that this anywhere is simply in Dublin. The point. This is simply the point. My other half is moving, relocating from Dublin to, to Brussels to take up an EU policy job. And he's finding one and two bedroom apartments in a wonderful part of the city mm. for under uh, for 1,600, 1,600. Mm. I mean, that's a month. Mm. I mean, that's just, there's just no comparison. When I first was moving to Ireland and I looked into the housing market, I thought, oh, small, smaller country. I'd lived in... I'd been living in Paris. I had lived in, I've lived in New York. I've lived in mm. Washington, D.C. And suddenly I see that Dublin is ranked in equivalence with London mm. yeah. and Paris. And this was years ago and it's only gotten higher. Yeah, I, I saw someone else, someone who works in academia who's just moved back to Ireland from New York and they've moved to, to Galway because they're taking up a role in, the, in Galway University there. And they were saying that they thought that after living in New York for so long, they'd be able to navigate a tricky, you know, uh, property real estate market. And they just couldn't believe how, how tough it is to still find housing and, it's and go. And they're still unable in to Dublin. do it. When I mean, I first moved, I moved to Cork. And I had a beautiful home, a historic home right on the river, lovely River Lee. And I moved up to Dublin and tripled 
my rent for less square footage, less square meters. But mm. now you'll actually find that those cities that you're mentioning, Cork, Galway, they're, going they're actually too. on the same tier as Dublin now. Yeah. Uh, there is one uh, counterpoint um, uh, that Leo Racker might offer where he here again, which, which to be fair, isn't given much mileage in any of today's papers, <laughs> which is that sometimes if you compare the, the cost of living or the cost of, of property that you're also not taking in the, the cost of living in those cities so say for example you know Berlin is maybe a bit of an aberration because it's a yeah. sort of a cheap enough city as, as European major ones go but that the cost of living for example in a New York or a London that the property itself might be around the same price but that although you get more amenities that the, the, the relative cost of an apartment versus the cost of what it takes yeah, to get by Yeah but I think I don't think you I don't think you make the same equation if you start to take in all the different considerations for example Hello, mass transit. You can mm-hmm. get everywhere you want to go, and you never have to have a car in New York. I, when I lived in New York, we, I never, mm-hmm. I never set foot in, in, a, in a car. Uh, low taxes created jobs, uh, says one texter. Alex, dereliction has been driven by excessive taxation on rent, which makes refurbishment unviable. Tax reliefs built Temple Bar, he says, uh, perhaps hinting that we should do the same thing again. Um, Rory says that I can't help but think that the attack on Corbyn by the right wing media is similar to the attack on Sinn Féin by the very similar media, he says. He gets there eventually. Uh, and someone else says, um, Gavin, I'm still trying to understand what the what the raise the roof rally was actually looking for. All I could hear was free houses on public land. Looks like a group of populist politicians and unions not taking account of the lack of tradesmen uh, to build them says that texture to 53106 we're going to take a break for now lots more to come as we go through the papers with Gina and Gabby we're back after this it is 11.28 this morning on On The Record Gavin Riley with you till 1 o'clock this lunchtime today being November the 27th is also the day of a memorial which is taking place in Moon Coin in County Kilkenny today that is the native home of Vicky Phelan and a public memorial which is taking place for her to celebrate her life is taking place there in a couple of hours time uh, Charlie Bird was speaking with News Talk earlier this week to give his tribute to Vicky ahead of that public memorial, which he and his wife will be attending later today. Let's have a quick listen. Well, last November, about six weeks after I got my diagnosis of my terminal illness, I woke up one Saturday morning to hear the whole country talking about the television interview Vicky Phelan had done with Ryan Tuberty the previous night on The Late Show. Of course, I knew who Vicky was and I remember being sad when she cut short her treatment in America and that she now wanted to spend all her remaining time with her children and her family. So after watching the late, late interview, in my head I just wanted to reach out to Vicky to see if she would meet me. I sent a message to someone I knew was a friend of hers, but the strangest thing happened, a message appeared in my WhatsApp, and who was it from yes, Vicky. She had heard from someone else that I would love to have met her. Anyway that is when our year-long relationship started. A couple of weeks later Claire, I and Tiger travelled to her home in Limerick. We spent a couple of hours with her. She had tea and scones ready for us anyway to cut a long story short. We hit it off as if we were long lost friends. We even joked that we both had bright eyes. That was the only time we met in person, but it was the start of a great supportive relationship on WhatsApp. Over almost a year we exchanged well over 20 messages supporting each other in our similar journey. The kindness of Vicky to me was remarkable. I still have her messages and some of them are voice messages. When I look and listen back, they make me cry. Her love, her kindness just blew me away. Over the year we had made provisional arrangements to meet up again, but each time they had to be called off because she had to get medical treatment or she had to return to the hospice in Limerick. When I asked her if she would support climb with Charlie, she said she would love to come down and wave me off. But once again her illness stopped her from travelling, but her dad and her sister did come down and climbed Crow Patrick with us in her honour. When I was at the top of the holy mountain and hundreds and hundreds of people were listening to my speech, at one point one of her family held up their mobile phone and who was on the phone, yes Vicky. 
Daniel O'Donnell, who had the microphone in his hand, and he talked to Vicky, and her amazing message of support for me rang out across the mountain top. I cried uncontrollably. I had arranged to light five candles in the small church at the top of the reek, and the first one was for my pal and hero Vicky. And yes I did and that candle is still safely in Westport. Like everyone else I have lost a hero. But no one will ever realise the crucial importance of that support from Vicky. But when my journey comes to an end, hopefully if there is life after death, that we both can meet again. Vicky I love you as does everyone else in this country. You are in all our hearts and never will be forgotten for what you have done for everyone. Charlie Bird speaking to News Talk a little earlier this week uh, about the death of his good friend uh, Vicky Field and Charlie and his wife Claire will be attending that public memorial which uh, gets underway in Vicky's native Mooncoin in County Kilkenny at one o'clock uh, this lunchtime. Uh, that will be available to watch online. I'm sure the details will be on News Talk social channels. Uh, I'll tweet them as well, myself as well in a couple of minutes time. Twitter.com forward slash Gav Riley. I'll tweet the link where you can watch that um, which, when it gets underway at one o'clock uh, this afternoon. Um, on the topic of cervical check, um, Gabby, and we obviously had the report this week from Gabriel Scali about the implementation of his original recommendations. Um, some interesting news from Daniel Murray on page eight of the Business Post uh, about the audits, uh, which were, of course, at the centre of the whole cervical check controversy about how they were communicated uh, and how they're currently on hold. Yes, so these audits, uh, Daniel Murray reports, um, of cervical check will not start again until the recommendations are made on the future of screening in Ireland. So these audits were actually paused in 2018 um, because it was a legal working group that was set up to examine that legal framework um, and they're expected to report by the year end. And so these audits are now not going to be, I suppose, restarted until um, that framework reports back and and after the minister makes a conclusion on it, there was a spokeswoman for HSE saying that only after this working group reported would a decision be taken on whether to restart the audits. Um, and I suppose what this means really, and of course the sad death of Vicky Phelan has led that there's still so many women that are you know, looking for answers into this scandal and they still have not gotten them. Um, and of course, you know, this new delay now is going to mean even a longer wait for those women to mm. get answers. Uh, one thing which is particularly striking as well by that piece by, by Daniel Murray is that he goes through um, some of the proposals proposals about um, how to future-proof the cervical screening programme. And there's mention, uh, and I don't know whether this is the direct implication of the piece, but that he mentions that uh, a process is going to begin in January 2023, uh, where the Minister for Health will bring forward amendments to the Patient Safety Bill requiring all patient-requested reviews to automatically trigger a full and open disclosure under this new law. Now, again, I don't know whether this was the intention of the wording, but it says January 2023, which means that Micheál Martin's promise only a couple of weeks ago after the death of Vicky Phelan to have open disclosure legislated for by the end of the year would now not appear to be the case because if it's only going to start in January, that means that it's not going to happen next month, which means that there may fall into the ambit of a new Minister for Health and then who knows exactly what that might mean in the meantime. And that in itself, if it is the implication, uh, Gina, would be quite disappointing given all the water that's gone under the bridge and exactly what Vicky Phelan was looking for in her final years. You know, the ongoing... I've met Vicky Phelan a couple of times going in between... up in the green room before going in for the Claire Byrne show and some other programs, for example, and, and and then listening to Charlie Bird's thoughts about her and every single person who's listening right now who's lost someone to cancer, but in particular, this cervical check scandal and the ongoing request and demand and and responsibility and right for answers. Mm. And I talk about with the clients that I work with now and, and the three top things that are really required for a leader and that's empathy humility and decisiveness 
And we're not seeing this. We're seeing the cans get kicked down the lane. We're seeing, oh, now we got to think about the liabilities and get a legal framework. And we're having disputes around that. And we're having ongoing delays. And, you know, honestly, each one of us is going to die. What's our legacy? What are we going to do? How are we going to make something right? How are we going to take responsibility? And it's the right thing to do. And it needs to be done. It needs to be done with a timeline and an efficiency. And it shouldn't matter which party is in position. And it Mm. shouldn't matter. It should not be a dispute, as you're seeing in the last pages of our last paragraphs of Daniel Murray's article, we're talking about that there's there was apparently a, a review of the of the screening program by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that actually the rate of Ireland's discordance, which is when you can see an original change of a screening is then changed upon review, is in line with a similar situation in England, and therefore it shouldn't be a cause for concern. And then Yet, of course, it should be a cause for concern and there should be answers and there should be some real findings and it shouldn't take more people to die who weren't given the right answers mm. before these answers are given. Uh, we're going to put in a query to the Department of Health and a spokesperson for Stephen Donnelly just to check if that is the implication of that piece that the changes to the patient safety bill uh, for open disclosure mm. may not, not happen until uh, the new year. If we get an answer before we go off air this lunchtime, we will, of course, let you know. Um, in the meantime, the front page of the Sunday Times uh, is quite fascinating. Uh, it obviously talks about some extensive battles that the Data Protection Commissioner has been having uh, with Facebook and its parent company, Meta, um, but also goes into some detail about some of the... Um, issues that the DPC is having uh, with Twitter because of all the internal turmoil that's going on there and how they're going to meet the company tomorrow to try, to try and find out. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, I, sh- I, sh- well, I, sh- well, I shouldn't I shouldn't be laughing because it's um, the, the substance of these words is pretty bizarre. It's going to meet the company tomorrow. The company. To try, the company being Twitter. Right, no, uh, but I mean, it says the entity, it doesn't say who. Well, yes, well, well, this is it. To try and find out if it still complies with its legal obligations after being bought by Elon Musk. Um, Helen Dixon, the Data Protection Commissioner, is dealing with multiple inquiries and its workload is set to be growing fast. Uh, The Commission is obviously the lead agency in Europe responsible for the enforcement of data law because Twitter's European headquarters being here. Uh, But we're told that Dixon has been unable to obtain answers from Twitter about the departure or dismissal of senior officials, including members of the board of its firm, um, according to multiple sources, Twitter obviously bought last month by Elon Musk for forty-four billion dollars. Uh, and last week, Sinead Sweeney, McSweeney, who was Twitter's global vice president for public policy, needed to go and get a high court injunction uh, to prevent uh, Musk from firing her because of the the nature of her duties. Um, the the idea that you need to uh, meet with people and and who knows which people they are to find out are you in keeping with your our rules. Like it's it's a pretty good little kernel of of where Twitter has gone in the last couple oh, of months. This is a this is a really alarming story, actually. When you think about it, all of Europe is looking toward Ireland right now because we're the headquarters of so many of these global social media companies or these European headquarters of these social media companies. And going, okay, well, you've got Sinead McSweeney, who's like the top dog, and I've met her several times, mm-hmm. lovely woman, trying to say, wait a minute, I'm the top dog at Twitter, and I've got to try to retain my position. So if she's struggling to retain her position, who who, in fact, are they going? Who's who's mine in the shop? Mm. And if you don't have any people that are actually taking on the authority of mining the shop, what happens to GDPR? What happens to the other data protection situations? And you've got on over on Meta also experiencing the ripple effects of massive layoffs. What's happening? And you have a potential responsibility and liability for millions, hundreds of millions of people getting their their mobile phone data scraped. I mean, mm. it's it's absolutely alarming. You, there's another story that goes on then talking about people in the United States who are on these visas for the, from Ireland trying to say now we don't have a job with Twitter and we're trying to find a new job. I mean, the out 
the just outlay of what's happening since Elon Musk took over. And then also, of course, the social stripe other companies are laying off. I mean, it's it's a real, mm. really alarming time. Gabby? I think it's a really, um, it's very interesting to see how, in fairness, Elon Musk has kind of single-handedly flipped the entire tech industry totally on its side. I mean, if you were to speak to a worker in tech, even this time, six months ago, they would say, I have a job in tech, I've got a great place to live, you know, I've got, I'm on a really good salary, a really mm. secure position, grand, yeah. everything's going great. Um, and now suddenly they're probably maybe looking at a possible uh, redundancy for, you know, what government officials have said, well, you know, the industry grew too fast, they hired too right. over hired yeah. and now they're making cutbacks um, but what does but, that mean it, in practice it means like, that people are losing their jobs right. but is, is it true though I mean like if you have a sector which has in the broad scheme of things grown at a breakneck speed for a long time now this is no consolation of course to those who are losing their jobs but that like is there not some truth to the government saying well maybe they're a bit over ambitious and this is just a bit of a correction sure yeah but we have heralded the likes of Elon Musk all the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world as being these top geniuses who know everything they're running the tech industry it's growing so quickly you know it's very much pacing the way dictating you know a lot of the way that we communicate now which mm. is of course over the phone and now suddenly they have this U-turn pretty much done and they're saying do you know what sorry we've messed up entirely we've over hired all these people we've screwed up and you know now we have to let all these people go and make them jobless and yeah. there's just not enough jobs over TikTok to go around for everybody who's been laid off <laughs> well the, the, another issue as well because of course there, Ireland is not the only country that has had tech layoffs and there are quite a few Irish people who have lived and worked in the US who mm. have recently lost their jobs amid the big layoffs there and the Business Post tells us today, uh, Gina, that they, quite a lot of them are, are now in a bit of a scramble to try and find new employment in that sector because, of course, they're there on work-related That's visas. It. And if you've got no work, you've got no visa. That's it. You, you've got a short-term visa and the visa runs out if you don't have the, your continued employment. And so you've got, I mean, we, we talk about what what's always powerful about these kinds of stories is when you put a name to the headline, you put a name to the figure. Mm. And in the, in, the, in the Business Post, it's talking about individuals and suddenly you've got a real person who's come over, tried to make a life, getting excited about living in another country, and then suddenly, without any warning, let's not forget, Mm. there are ways to lay off and there are ways to lay off, and Elon Musk certainly has hit a new low on how to do that. And it's absolutely concerning, and especially let's all, as you were saying with the Christmas giveaway, it's four weeks to Christmas, and layoffs are hard no matter what time of the year, but especially now when we come to the holidays, it is extremely... scary and frightening and uncertain. Mm, there's an interesting uh, piece, as I say, in the Business Post. It speaks to a, an immigration lawyer, uh, an Irish immigration lawyer, um, Fiona McEntee, who's based in, in Chicago. And she points out that um, if you're in the US on what's called a H-1B visa, um, you've got 60 days to find alternative employment. But in truth, it's very difficult to find a new job in that time frame because some of the tech processes of the their matters of recruiting and all of their onboarding, if you want to use their lingo, uh, can take weeks, which means that it's nearly impossible to get a new job within 60 days. Uh, but what's worse is that there are a lot of visas who are on something, workers who are on something called the L visa, uh, which is even worse then because their their employment is tied to a particular company. So they don't have the means of transferring it. Exactly. So as soon as, as gonna... Mark Zuckerberg right. or Elon Musk decides that you're expendable, that's it, you're gone and you don't have recourse. And I know uh, Mark Zuckerberg in his all staff circular said that they were going to do their best to help people whose immigration status was linked to their job to find new um, accommodation somewhere one, one way or another um, and that apparently that hasn't come to fruition because they're so overwhelmed well, by people who need their help. Well it's an easy thing to say and then there's a the backlog and then there's unfortunately again with this holiday thing that 
people, the, are, the staffing and the, and the vacations and things like that, people aren't going to be able to, even if they wanted to transfer your HR departments of other companies, mm-hmm. aren't going to be at full staff. And that's going to make, make delays till likely most business starts to dry up around the first week of December in terms of hiring, learning mm-hmm. development programs, yeah. things are, that are attracting and retaining talent. And so that really gets difficult if you're in a situation as dire as those people that are described in that article. Quite a lot of texts still coming in about Leo Varadkar's views on housing uh, a week <laughs> later. Tony in Galway says, uh, Varadkar's utterances are further proof that his ethos of looking after the large corporations at the expense of ordinary citizens is a huge factor in the housing crisis, he says. Uh, someone else says, the other man's grass is always greener. The sun is always brighter on the other side. Some are lucky, some are not. Just be happy with what you've got, uh, <laughs> says someone who signs off as Petula Clark. Um, I, I, I don't think Petula Clark is actually listening to on the record but who knows um, someone else says are the price comparative EU apartments fully furnished and maintained as Irish landlords are required to do many EU apartments says this texter are completely empty some of them don't even have kitchens so you're not always comparing like with like uh, says that texter 53106 the number for your text at a cost of 30 cent back with more from the papers in just a moment uh, just to bring you a bit more up to speed uh, we were saying before the break about a piece in the business post which may have given the impression and certainly did to us as we were reading it out that change just to the patient safety bill to legislate for open disclosure may not happen now until the other side of New Year. Um, the spokesperson for Stephen Donnelly has responded to us in the last couple of minutes and says that is not the case. He says that that refers to a new process for screening reviews. That's what's kicking off in January. That's a matter being worked on by the HSE. But a spokesperson for Stephen Donnelly does tell us that the patient safety bill, which will include clauses to legislate for open disclosure, uh, will go back to report and final stages in the Dáil on December the 7th as planned. That is Wednesday week. And that will mean that the Dáil will have signed off on that legislation within 10 days' time, and that will put the idea of open disclosure on a mandatory footing, according to a spokesperson for Stephen Donnelly getting in touch with us uh, this morning. Uh, 11.48, uh, Gina London and Gabby Agatafitskita still with me in studio. Um, there is one piece which has already kicked off uh, in our mentions on Twitter this morning, and that is a uh, piece um, on the front page of the Mail on Sunday, an interview given by the incoming Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, to John Lee, uh, in which he says that uh, were he asked to, by the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, uh, in light of the ongoing threats uh, that members of Garda Shiakone appear to face, uh, that he would approve any request for more or all members of Garda Shiakone to be armed. Uh, Gina, you, well, I only Aww. wish people, could, I only wish people could see the way that you rolled your eyes I mean, before I read that out. The, as as the, someone who hails from a policing utopia, oh, yes. uh, what, what would you make of the idea of arming rank and file members of Garda Shiakone? Blue lives matter. No, um, look, just say no. Pandora's box. How many more things can I say? In all ser- in all seriousness, the. The gun, you cannot put the guns back in the box once you start arming. And it, and first of all, a blanket statement like any request, what is that? How how responsible even is something like that? Let's mm-hmm. Are there particular divisions and why and what would be the circumstances? Especially alongside, by the way, that there's reports that recruitment for the for the guardies down. Let's get the police numbers up. Mm-hmm. Let's find ways to incentivize, incentivize the police force here and not rush to getting people armed. I mean, my gosh, I don't need to start doing American statistics on guns and what happens, not just if you okay, I understand that there's not the gun mm. culture here mm. in Ireland, there's the United States, and we're not suddenly talking that's going to be the old old Wild West with bad guys armed and the good guys armed yeah. and, and the, oh, it's a deterrent mechanism so let's get the the police armed here. But alongside proper training, alongside some sort of measured approach, I mean, at the minimum, 
there should have been, let's explore options, as the quote. Not mm. that I'm going to say yes to any kind of a request. Well, I, I, he's talking about a hypothetical example where I'd imagine all of that has been exhausted. And sure, the Garda Commission then comes to him and says, this still, is what we're going to do. Look, I, I, I think there's actually something quite unique. I mean, certainly when I tell my American friends that that the most of the police force in Ireland do not carry weapons, they're like, what? How do they get anything done? But that's because there's a different mindset. And I know that there have been recent attacks on on Guardi, and that's not to say that that's okay. Mm. But it's also not to say that arming everyone is suddenly the solution. Mm. Let's not rush to guns. Please take a lesson from this person uh, from the United States we, we are, and don't do it. There's, there's two counterpoints to, to the general opposition to this. One is that, as you've noticed there, that you, you say that we're, we're somewhat special. You could argue that we're something of an aberration in that the police force in this country doesn't carry weapons in the same way that most of the police forces do. But also, as you've observed yourself, we don't have a culture of mass gun ownership among the public. And there's plenty of other police forces around the world in which members are more armed than their Irish counterparts. But there isn't a culture of um, you know, there being unwarranted discharge of weapons and people being killed because of unnecessary policing approaches. So, I, yes, Ireland might be at one, ex- one extreme of the spectrum and the US may be at the other, but there's plenty of other countries in, oh, look, in the I'm, halfway. I'm, I'm, flying made to, it work. I'm flying to Saudi Arabia tomorrow, so there are certainly other end, ends of the spectrum to, to be considered. But the point, I think, simply is that, if, if there, as I understand, there's already some department divisions of the guardians so, that do yeah. carry. Detectives. Right, and so, and so th- there could be an expanding of, of that. And again, slowly, slowly, let's try to make this much more of a... Of a tranched approach because it just is simply one of these things where once you get something out of the bag you're not going to get it back in and I think it needs to be considered very very fully Yeah I I think to pick up on Gavin's point there that you know Ireland is the outlier in that our police force is not armed. I travelled with the Taoiseach this week and he was in Paris and I was trying to get into the Elysee for his meeting with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron and and the I mean the Really, the huge, big, massive guns the police had there were frightening <laughs> because I'm not used to seeing them at right. all here. And I think one, when the Angarda Shikana was first established, um, you know, many years ago, it, that the difference between it and many other European forces was that Gardaí did not carry guns. That mm. was it had the guards have a baton and the detectives carry um, guns. And we did see, for example, a detective in 2020 who was shot with his own gun in Castlery in County Roscommon. So look, I think. If really any suggestion, and I think in fairness to the Tanish, he's sort of saying if this was a request from the Garda Commissioner, I, he wouldn't block that. I think he's sort of trying to make this move in, in enforcing this Fine Gael, you know, or tough on crime um, stance. I don't know but if this is the best way to do it. Because there are different ways to be tough on crime and one is to give more resources to the to the police force so that mm. you can recruit better and you can recruit mm. more quality people and give which, them the which, kind of which training sure they, they would that tell they you that need. they're doing anyway yeah um, he also says uh, that one other issue that we need and, and this is in the context of uh, there being attacks on members of Garda Shia as there were uh, in Ballyfermot last weekend um, he says that one other thing that officers need is body cameras uh, as soon as possible he says that we've got to get that done soon so that that will make their job safer uh, he says uh, which again I like that do you, do you think that that's a happy medium? Because I, I, there's, I do like that. There's, there's, see, there's an argument that in other countries like, for example, and again, I don't mean to harp on the United States because it, it is in please, its own way. by all means. But it, in, in its own way, it's an outlier too. But there's an argument that using body cameras is almost an aggravating measure that sometimes people feel like then that they're being surveyed mm. and it makes people more aggressive than they would otherwise be. Uh, the alternative, possibly. I haven't heard research <clears throat> on, I haven't seen research on that I, on that concept, but certainly the research is out on the idea that when there is the body camera, it's holding both people responsible in a different way. So if you've got someone who's who is armed, 
then that's you're getting an, an actual recording of that and you're actually getting that information and it actually in many ways could help reduce is what i would is the information mm. that i've seen is if you have the police that have that in their vehicles on their on their persons that it's a way to certainly expedite the potential charges concerns, that come from that too yeah i think there's concerns around um privacy and again like this idea of being watched to the guard that you're there's watching cameras on every street corner in ireland i mean there's 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 cctv all over this, mm. this country. but, but, but also to make talking. the point that you know during the murder of george george floyd for example i mean body camera footage was actually really crucial in giving um a perspective on what actually happened correct um an interesting uh example of, of how this debate would play out um in our texts right now um one person says the hard truth is that people are no longer afraid to beat up guardy badly anymore you can't put that back in the box without arming the guardy and then someone else says that if the police are to be armed, then the public should be armed to protect to protect themselves from overzealous police. Correct. And that's and where you end up the United States. getting into the, the arms race that you were fearing. Um, I did hear, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up so- shortly on this, guy, but um, an expert told me when I was doing this for TV on Friday that there's already been examples in the UK where the footage garnered through body cams has been used to basically compile databases of people who haven't actually committed any crime, but rather Mm. just profiling people based on their attendance at like different rallies or protests and that that might be a danger of having body cams on guards. Yeah, I mean, I would, I think there are, the Irish Council of Civil Liberties I know has raised concerns about it and I would be interested to see how it would work even just, for example, with data protection and the freedom of information. So, for example, if I attend some sort of let's just for example say a protest I wouldn't go to protest as a journalist unless I was covering it but just if Mm. a body camera of a guard captured me do I have access to obtaining that footage? Because, of course, I'm in it. It concerns me. Do the guards know that it's me? Can the guys identify me through my face? Know that it's, you know, and have it on that file that I attended this protest or this rally or yeah. whatever. Um, so I think there are valid concerns there around um, data protection. A lot to be sounded out. Uh, we will leave it there. Thank you both very much for coming in to talk through the papers this morning. Gina London, uh, international communication strategist and trainer and former CNN correspondent. Uh, best of luck in Saudi Arabia uh, this week, I, w- I won't ask. Uh, and Gabby Gadavitskita, political reporter for independent.ie On the record with Gavin Riley Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike Different skill sets Diverse opinions It all adds up to the new equation On News Talk